will be a glorious day. Amen. Amen. I can't wait for that to happen. You know, we celebrated, uh, uh, in fact, I didn't mention it last week, but we actually hit it last week. We had a goal of raising $20,000 towards the, the program of, or the Purely on Principle Fund. That is, to pay off our debt where we're paying off principal. And, uh, and our goal was, by Easter, to come up with an extra $20,000. That's above and beyond the monthly $2,500 that we sent to the bank. And you guys did it. But you know, it's not just enough to say it. I, I'm going to ask Scott to come up here and show you the puzzle because we need to celebrate this together. Amen? Amen. And this is the completed puzzle. So, yeah, great job. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. You know, that's, it, it's, it's beautiful. Not just because it's, it's $20,000, but when you think of the fact that we're trying to get off all the debt that we have, Imagine what we can do when we're not spending $2,500 a month, what we, we can invest that money in to reach people for Christ, amen? And that's what we're here to do. And so we're excited about that. That's why, uh, why we are. And I just want to celebrate with you because you guys have made the sacrifices to make that happen. Every single one of those pieces in that puzzle represents $10. And so that's a lot of dollars represented in one puzzle. So thank you. Great work. And, uh, and I hope you enjoy the popcorn. I know it's a, it's a corny way of celebrating, but... There's, a, there's just a kernel of truth to every one of those. Um, well, can I have another one? Uh, shucks. Um, oh, some, some of you are getting that one too, but I, I apologize. But, you know, it is something to celebrate. We're excited for that. All right, let's get back into the, the reason why we're here today. Let's get into the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 12. And we've taken a couple of weeks off, so let's review uh, where, where we've been and where we're heading in the book of Romans. Remember that in the book of Romans, uh, we started out with uh, Paul's argument for uh, or understanding and laying the foundation for us, understanding our sinfulness and why it is that God would be just to punish us for our sins. And then from there, we went to the topic of salvation, that God has provided salvation, which is by grace, through faith, not by works. Aren't you thankful for that? It was by works, not a single one of us would receive salvation. And that begins a process then of sanctification where we become more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that's the process uh, that, we, that we're, we're on if we're believers. And during that process, we don't have to worry about losing our salvation because we're the sons of God and that gives us security. And so Paul explains the security that we have as sons and daughters of God. And then over the last several weeks, we dealt with the issue of selection. And uh, by the selection of how do you get in? How do you become a believer? And we find this balance between the fact that God must draw us, right? If God's not drawing us, then we would follow our sinful natures. But at the same time, it is our responsibility to respond in faith. Amen? And so we see uh, how these two work together. And, and Paul lays it out with a beautiful argument and showing us through Israel as an example. How God chose Israel, but as individuals... People still have to choose to follow God. And that brings us to where we're at today. Chapter 12, we start the last section in the, in the book of Romans, uh, starting in chapter 12. Uh, we're only going to cover two verses today. Some of you are thinking, that means we'll finish Romans sometime after the rapture, right? 
But don't worry about it. But Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 really begins to, um, to, to spring us into the rest of the, of the, the last few ch- uh, chapters of the book. In fact, everything from, ch- uh, from chapter 12, verse 3, all the way through the, the end of chapter 16, is somehow connected to this concept that we find in Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. And that's the concept of service. Um, and so we'll be dealing with service for the, the uh, several chapters. See, up until now, really, everything has been about salvation in one way or another, right? Uh, why we need it, not of sin, what salvation is, uh, uh, what, what we're being saved uh, from. But now we're going to be talk about, talking about what we're saved to. So if you're a genuine believer, then what does that mean for you? What are you becoming? What is, what is it? And it is a life of service. And so we're going to see what that means. And so let's begin then in Romans chapter 12. We'll read verse 1 first. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that's what brings us, that's what springs us into the entire chapter or really the chapter, chapter of, the, of the book of Romans on service. And so when you look at this verse, in a nutshell, it seems pretty simple. But there's a lot of meaning in each of these words. And so we'll, we'll just describe it briefly. First, when you look at it, he's basically saying, I, I'm begging you, after all, in light of all of the mercies that you've seen God do, after everything you've seen that God do for, for salvation, I'm urging you to present your, your bodies, everything you have, your, your bodies, as a living sacrifice to God. And this would be holy, this would be acceptable to God, and after all, it's your reasonable duty, right? That's what he's saying, in a nutshell. But let's look at this a little bit closer and, and, uh, and, and dissect this a little bit. Can we do that today? First, I beseech. I beseech. The word beseech means to implore. It's to beg. And you have this, this picture of, of, uh, of Paul begging people, saying, I'm telling you, I'm begging you, you got to do this, right? Now, when you think about that, and we've just talked about this difference between hyper-Calvinism and hyper-Arminianism. Remember, we talked a little bit about that. And you say, wait a minute, if, if Paul is begging, what is there? there's an implication to the fact that he's begging, and that is that there, you have a choice to make, right? Does that make sense? Because if there's no choice, if we were all just uh, characters in a book that's already written and so on, then, then there's no reason to beg. Does that, does that make sense? But Paul is begging. Why? Because there's a choice. So when we read this, we know that he's about to set us up for a choice that we need to make. Right? There's a choice that, that after all of this doctrine that we've understood from chapters 1 through 11, now, he's like, now it's, it's going to come to a point where you have to make a choice. Why? Because he's begging us to do something. And so I beseech you, therefore, brothers, then we read, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. What does that mean? In light of how God has shown his mercy towards us, that is why we're to present our bodies. You see, take a moment here and reflect on the mercy that has been shown to you. And that is going to be the motivation that's going to cause you to, to spring into this life of service. If, if, if you're a believer and you have not been a servant, right? If you don't have a, a selfless, sacrificial lifestyle, uh, then chances are you have not reflected enough on the mercy of God. You, you must take the time to reflect on the mercies of 
God. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, a hymn that we'll talk about it in a moment. Let me just, uh, before I hit, hit that, let's think about the mercy shown in every single thing we study in the book of Romans. Sin. What's the mercy? What do we deserve? If you start with what we deserve, the sinners that we are, God created us for a purpose, and that purpose is to have an intimate relationship with him, and what do we do? We pretend like he doesn't even exist sometimes. Right. That's what the world does. We take him out of, uh, in fact, it, it can't even, uh, you can't even mention him in, in public schools without getting in trouble, typically, right? Unless you're using his name as a swear, but that's okay. You know, but sin, salvation, it's by grace. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Through faith. That's not worse. We can't earn it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. Talk about the mercies of God. Sanctification, that entire process of becoming like him. That's, that's driven by the Holy Spirit that was given to us. The security that we're his sons and daughters. Think about that. Were we born into the family of God? Absolutely not. And, and in a sense, we are, what, adopted? He chose to allow us to be his sons and daughters. What an amazing mercies. And the, the selection, even in the selection, yes, we had to respond in faith, but he drew us to himself. He uses his creation. He uses the Holy Spirit's conviction. He uses the kind of, he uses multiple things. And he's drawing us into himself. And without that, we would follow our natures right to the grave. Amen? In view of God's mercy, there's a, a hymn writer, Isaac Watts, who wrote uh, a song that I'm sure that you're familiar with, When I Survey the Wondrous cross. You know the hymn. In the third verse of that hymn, we see him doing exactly what Paul is telling us to do in Romans 12. He's viewing God's mercies. He's taking the time to meditate and reflect on God's mercies. And we read these words. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? That's a beautiful, poetic expression. Isaac Watts understood it, didn't he? He got it. He knew what it meant to, to look at the mercies of, of God. Let's continue on. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, in view of all that God did, that you present your bodies. Couple things we need to understand here. There's a couple things that don't show up in English. For one, uh, in, in in Greek you have two different tenses for imperatives. Imperative is a command. You have a present continual, and you have a present auxiliary, which means it's it's a one-time thing. What we what we find here is that this is the present tense one-time uh, meaning of this. That's the verb tense. The idea then is that you present your bodies one time. This is not something that you have to wake up every morning and do. This is something that you do. You say, Lord, I'm presenting my body to you. This, here it is. It's yours. And from that point on, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to God. Does that make sense? It's not something that you have to keep doing over and over and over again. Now, there are some of those verbs in the, in the, same, in the same context here. We'll talk about those later. But this is something that you do once for all. It's the difference between a resolution and deciding every time you come up with a temptation. Right? With a resolution, what do you do? You choose ahead of time. You say, I am going to, this is usually done on January 1st, right? 
I am going to make a decision that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I am going to work out. Or you make some kind of decision, whatever it might be, right? How many of us have ever done that? Yep. How many of you have kept that? No hands. Right, there's one. All right, good. Um, all right, so, so that way, when Monday comes, you don't have to make the decision again, do you? Why? Because you've already made that decision. It was a once-for-all decision. And, and you say, because it's Monday, I'm getting up, I'm going to do my exercise. Because it's Wednesday, I'm going to get up and do my exercise. Because it's Friday. If you just say, I decide that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm going to get up and decide whether or not I want to work out that day. What happens? Monday comes. You wake up, and you come up with an excuse. Oh, I was up late last night watching my favorite TV show. I was, whatever it might be, and we don't do it. That's why, with this present your bodies, it's that one time, hey guys, make this a resolution. It's not just a decision that you make all the time. Present your bodies, just give it to them, and then it belongs to him. Right? And uh, so present your bodies. When you also, when you think about it, What's the source of all of our sinful trouble anyway? It's our body. All through the scriptures, the, body, the, the scriptures calls it our flesh, our bodies, right? Somehow, in some sense, our sinful nature is connected to this body. And what is that? Well, can we escape this body? No, we can't. So we're stuck. We've, we've got this sinful nature that, we, that we're still dealing with as, as, as human beings. We've got this sinful nature. And God is saying, what I want you to do is take that horrible, wretched body that you have, as imperfect as it may be, which is true for all of us, right? Guess what? God says, that's what I want. I want your body. I want everything. That, that, that you do everything. Everywhere you go, everything you do, we do with our bodies. And, and he's saying, that's what I want. You see, we have a choice then. Are we going to use our body for ourselves? Or we're going to use our body for him. Right? And at the moment that we surrender everything to God, and at the moment that we present our bodies to him, what we're saying is, this body no longer am I going to use for self-satisfaction. I'm going to use it for you, God. Isn't that what Paul said in, in Philippians, anyway? When he's talking about how people have different views of what they value in life, he said, for me, to live is what? Christ and to die is gain. This whole point. And in the context, he said, I don't care if I go to jail. I don't care if I'm falsely accused. That just means God's starting a prison ministry. Right? And he's using me. There I go. Right? I don't care if they beat me. I don't care whatever. You know, because if God is doing it, then it's him, him using me for his sake instead of for my own. For me to live is Christ. See, for a lot of people, for us to live isn't Christ. For us to live is, is something self-centered. You replace that word Christ with anything else, and you've got problems, right? See, with anything else, death is no longer a gain. If for me to live is Christ, then death is a gain. That's what he says. For me to live can be anything else, even good things. For me to live is family. Family's great. I love family. I love my family. I love your families. But if for me to live is family, then death is no longer a gain. It's a loss. Right? For me to live is ministry. ministry. How could ministry be bad? You, you replace that with, instead of using your life to serve God out of a relationship with God, maybe you just love ministry because of the tension you get or 
whatever. You, you love, you can put anything you want in there, even good things. For me to live with anything else, it's, well, that is a loss. It's not a game. Here's what Paul saying. Present your bodies. Give them everything. Everything you are, everything you do, all your abilities, your lack of abilities, give it all to God. Amen. That's a huge thing, isn't it? Yep. Now, you're probably saying, Pastor Dave, you're not, you're not a good recruiter here because you're, well, I, don't, I don't think I want to sign up for that. <laughs> Who wants to do that? But let's continue reading. Right, he goes even a step further. We read this. We read, uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Think about that. A living sacrifice. First of all, when you think of sacrifices, what, what, what images come to your mind? From, think of all throughout the Old Testament. None of those sacrifices lived. Right? So this is actually a, a kind of a, a, an oxymoron, a living sacrifice, because sacrifices are supposed to die. Right? And in fact, we have a, a dying sacrifice, and we, we see that in everything we just celebrated for the last two weeks. We have Jesus Christ being the dying sacrifice for us. Now he's asking us to become a living sacrifice. Uh, boy, that, that does not sound enticing. When you think of being a sacrifice, you're, you're opening yourself to total vulnerability. The only time I can think of a living sacrifice in Scripture uh, is when God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, and Isaac didn't fight it. Right? And he went out there, and, and God told him, son, this is what God told me to do, and we, we don't read anything about Isaac fighting that, right? In total vulnerability, laying yourself on the altar, saying, all right, God, whatever you want to do with me. Whatever you want to do. Now what we find out in Genesis 12 is that even with his willingness, God provided a substitute to be the dying sacrifice for him, right? Amen. And we find that that's exactly what he's done for us, too, by providing Jesus Christ for us as well. But this is what he's asking. He says, I, I want you to be uh, a living sacrifice. Uh, a friend of mine, one of, the, one of the members here, has said to me multiple times, you know what the problem with the living sacrifice is? You know what they ignore this? They tend to crawl off the altar. <laughs> right? Living sacrifices tend to crawl off the altar. That's the human nature. That's where we are by nature. And God says, that's not what I want. I want you to present your bodies once and for all as a living sacrifice. I want you to do what Isaac did. Right? Your time. Your talents. Your treasures. Everything. And then we continue to read, holy, acceptable to God. You know, when you think of, of the idea of sacrifices, uh, sacrifices can be accepted or they, they might not be accepted because God is holy. He cannot accept a sacrifice that is not holy, is not perfect, 100% sanctified, right? In fact, we can go all the way back to the original sacrifice uh, when Cain killed Abel, or, uh, remember that? Why did all of that take place? Because, because Cain offered a sacrifice that was not holy, it was not acceptable. Because there was no blood in it, there was no sacrifice, there was no death, and without the remission, or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins, right? Abel offered a blood sacrifice. It was holy to God, it was acceptable to God. God accepted it, which means it actually provided the pardon that they were seeking. So, God is looking at this, and he's saying, I want, I want their, their 
uh, your, your sacrifices to be holy and acceptable. And you say, God is willing to make this body, which is still sinful, by the way, and if I sacrifice this to the Lord, he's saying, that to me is holy and it's acceptable. I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement because, because in a lot of religions, you have to work your way to having a good standing with God. You work your way to a point to where God can say, okay, I can now work with you. That's the exact opposite in Christianity. Instead, what you have is God saying, I will take what is totally corrupt, you sacrifice it to me, and I'm going to turn it into something special. Amen. Very different way of looking at things. And, 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 uh, and as a sinner, I, I appreciate that. So when I view God's mercies, this is one of the things that crosses my mind. This is, it's my body is holy and acceptable to God because of what Christ did on the cross for me. And then he goes on to say, which is your reasonable service. The word for reasonable, the, the, the Greek word there is the same word where we get the word logic from. It's your logic. This is your logical service. This is your logical duty. You say, wait a minute. What, what Paul is telling us to sacrifice is just everything, right? He's telling you to sacrifice everything. And then he says, but in view of God's mercies, this is a reasonable request. He's really not asking for, for that much. And really, when we think about Christ's mercies, we get it. It does make sense. If you don't reflect on the mercies of God, this doesn't make any sense. But when you do reflect on the mercies of God, it totally makes sense. Because Christ was the dying sacrifice, so now we can be a living sacrifice. Uh, he's giving us eternity, and we're giving him our lifespan. Right? Now, if I were to tell you that to, to leave this room, there's an exit tax at the end of the service, and it's $100 per person, how many of you would grumble about paying that $100? Right? Yeah. My hand's raised, too. <laughs> and if we said, oh, don't worry about it. We accept your credit cards, and you're going to have to pay for it. One way or another, $100 to exit this room. You would all grumble about that. But let's add something else to it. What if I were to tell you that if you gave $100 before you left the, the church building today, that we were going to invest it in a, in a type of fund, and we could guarantee, assume you could, assume you could guarantee this, we could guarantee that by the end of the month, it'll be worth $100,000, and we'll give it back to you. How many of you would grumble about giving $100? Nobody, right? See, the perspective that we have changes everything. And so when we realize that that what God is asking for us is so small in comparison to what he is giving us. I mean, he's asking us for our lives. And even if that meant, Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice my life, and if that means dying right now, then that's okay by me. Right? Because what he's giving us is an eternity. And you can't even compare. $100,000 is still comparable to $100. It's only a 1,000 times greater. But a 1,000 lifetimes from now... We'll just be getting started, right? And so in view of God's mercies, that changes everything. So he's looking at that and says, now, yeah, I'm just, yeah, God's asking for everything. But that's a reasonable thing to ask. It's a reasonable thing to ask. So the point here is, is that God, or that Paul is imploring us to make that one-time decision to give him everything. And I'd like to, to take a closer look at that poem that became a hymn by Isaac Watts called When I Survey 
the wondrous cross. Because I believe that when, when Isaac Watts wrote this, he was obeying Romans 12. I don't know if that's the verse he had in his mind at the moment. These concepts are exactly what was going on in his mind. And as you think of Christ on the cross, and you think of all that he did for us, listen to the words of this hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And pour content on all of my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He got it. He got it. He understood in view, in view of God's mercies, he presented his body a living sacrifice. Right? He understood what God was all about. And he accepted it. That's verse 1. Romans is rich, isn't it? <laughs> Romans is rich. Let's go to verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have two major commands in here. The first one is do not be conformed. Uh, do not be conformed. Now, remember when I said that there, that there, are, verses, uh, there are verbs in this passage that are ongoing? Here we go. Here's our first one. When he says do not be conformed, this is not that singular one-time event. It's, it's kind of like saying... You're going to have to do this all the time. This is something that you're going to have to wake up every day, and when you put your feet on the floor, you're going to have to make sure you're not being conformed to this world. Why? Because the pressure of being conformed to the world is going to be nonstop. The moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, does that mean there is no, never again pressure to be conformed to the image of the world? Anyone else ever here ever feel it? Think one of the, the, the great hymns? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Some of our hymn writers, they studied this, didn't they? And, and uh, what beautiful, beautiful words. So, this is an ongoing present imperative tense. Uh, uh, or, or the, so that was your present, uh, present your bodies. The not conforming is that daily process that needs to be renewed every time you wake. Every time uh, the temptation comes before you, we have to make sure we are not being conformed to the image of the world. Uh, and so that's, that's the first part I want us to understand. Do not be conformed. But then the, it goes on to talk about being conformed to this world. What, what does that mean, being conformed to this world? It means that the idea in the, in the text here is that, that there's a mold, and it's like a stamping plant, and 
and it's stamping us and it's trying to form us into the same thing so that everybody is the exact same. We're all thinking the same, all acting the same in a certain pattern. There's a mold that the world is trying to get you to fit into. Did you know? Did you know that the world wants you to think a certain way? It's true. In fact, we find it more and more true. And as the world becomes more and more corrupt, and as our governments become more and more corrupt, as we, if you read the book of Revelations, this is where we're headed, right? Um, and you find, you find that, th- that they want us to think in a certain way. You know, think about it. Why are our governments, not just ours, but in other places in the world, why are governments so anti-homeschool, for example? Um, even though students are, on average, scoring a little bit higher than in the, the government-funded schools. Now, by the way, I'm not pushing homeschooling. I, our kids have been through it all, haven't they? <laughs> We've had homeschool, Christian school, language school, public school, charter school. Um, did I miss any schools? <laughs> What's that? Spanish immersion. Yeah, see, I, I there's still more. Our kids have been in every, every kind of school, and so I, whatever, and we're not... As, as a church, there's enough freedom for us to choose as parents how we're going to work that out. Amen? Amen. Right. But why would governments be against it? Well, I mean, think about the number of hours that they no longer have control of what your kids are learning. Independent thought, right? Independent thought might give them the opportunity to not think like they want you to think. Right? And if they want you to be good consumers, right? Good consumers. That don't complain. It's, it, they don't want the opportunity to brainwash your kids. You might be saying, Pastor Dave, you're starting to sound like George Orwell. Remember George Orwell wrote uh, 1984, where it's all about your thought, you know, the, the, the thought life. Remember, uh, if you've read the book, um, it, it, you've got the government is called Big Brother, right? Who's always there watching out for you. And, and, and uh, the government controls the way you think. In fact, they invented their own language called Newspeak. Why? Because they omitted words that you could use that would cause independent thinking, right? And if by chance somehow you still found a way to have any independent thought, even if your job, like the, kid, the main character, was to rewrite history and spin it so that it, it, would, it would match whatever the government wanted you to think at that time, in, in that independent thinking is considered a thought crime, Right? Now, this is fiction. It's a book. Now, I don't think that he got the year right. <laughs> but, the, but he's right in the sense that there is, there is a pressure from, from the world that says, we want you to think a certain way. In fact, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is go to the book of Revelation. You go to the book of Revelation when, the, when our world is as corrupt as it's going to get. When it gets so corrupt that God says, that's it, I'm punishing the world now. He's done that once before. Right? With the, with, in the lifetime of Noah. When we get to that point, when it says, as it were, as it, as, when it is, as it was in the days of Noah, okay, we'll get there. When it does, what's going to happen? God's going to punish the world. How does the Bible describe the world at that point? It's a one-world government. Right? Total control. That means everybody is forced to fit the mold. You can't think differently. You can't act differently. Uh, all, everything you do uh, is determined by the one world government. You're forced to fit the mold. In fact, to the point that if you don't accept the system, which they call the mark of the beast, 666, if you don't accept it, then guess what? 
You can't purchase anything. And if you don't starve, then you're beheaded. Because there has to be conformity. And, and, uh, and so what, what Paul is telling us here is don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world tell you how to think. Don't let the world tell you how to believe. Don't be conformed to the world. So what does the world, or what does the mold look like? I mean, how, how do they want us to think? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and, and uh, keep, a, keep a finger here in Romans, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul describes this very clearly. He says this, And you, he made alive, talking about the believers, were made alive by, by God, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, what does he say from here? According to the course of this world. Before salvation, guess what we were all doing? We were fitting into the mold. We were following the course that the world has set, before, set for us. We, were, we weren't like trees planted by, uh, by rivers of water that Psalm 1 describes. We were like tumbleweeds being blown whichever direction the wind goes. It goes on to say, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who's he talking about? Satan. See, we talk about the world in terms of the world, but who's running it? Satan. So if we're following the pattern of the world, we're really following the pattern of whom? Of Satan. Goes on to say, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. We've all been there, he says. We were all following, we were being shaped into the mold. And what does it look like? We conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. It was all about me. That's the pattern of thinking that, that Paul said, you can't think like this. It cannot be all about you. This is human nature. The world is going to push you in that direction, and Satan is trying to push you in that direction. And you've got to fight all three of them. Because this is a radical, radical way of seeing everything. No more living in selfishness and vanity and pride. Which makes sense then why Paul says the first thing you need to do is sacrifice your body to God. Right? You need to sacrifice it. It totally makes sense. Because the way the world wants to think is that it's all about me. It's all about me. Wow. Um, that, doesn't that sound selfish? Are we saying that everyone uh, who's not a believer is selfish? You know, in fact, the enlightened ones of our culture would say, no, it's not really all about me, it's all about we, right? It didn't line up there for some reason, but you get the idea. It did on the screen. <laughs> but it's all about we. Now, aside the fact that that's horrible grammar, uh, the idea behind that is, is there's, it, well, no, there's got to be this sense of community, and so it's all about us, right? It's all, and, and so that's where a lot of this politically correct and all that kind of movement. So that way you can still have some sense of being good, right? Um, but what we find is that really all of this is still selfishness. See, in fact, what you find then is that the, the ethic of the world has become you don't have the right to judge my behavior. Period. Why? Because it's all about we. You, know? you have to be inclusive of everything. So if you say that what I'm doing is wrong, then, then shame on you. You're the one that needs to be gotten rid of. Right? Wouldn't we say this is the ethic that we find all around us in, in the world? Even, even in the, uh, the debates uh, before when, 
when our, our now current Vice President Joe Biden was asked on the, the, the issue of abortion, he said, oh, I believe it's wrong. I'm Catholic. I follow my Catholic. I think it's wrong. But what's even more wrong is to tell someone else that they're wrong. So that's why I, I support it. And, and come over. What? what? <laughs> Wait a minute. What do you say? Because the greatest ethic right now of, of the world is you can't judge someone else's behavior as right or wrong. And Paul said, don't fall for that. I'll give, I'm going to use an example of sexual perversions. I'm not going to go into great details or, what, or define that today. You know what I'm talking about. You know the different ideas uh, of that. But any type of sex outside of the divine design for sex, right? And you look at, the, at that. In the past, we would say it was wrong to participate in perversion, right? But it was right to condemn perversion. But now the world's thinking is very different. And you take the new ethic that it, the only wrong thing is to judge someone else. And what happens? What you find is in the present, these two are switched. It is okay to, per, to participate in perversion. That's okay. The wrong thing is when you condemn someone else for it. If you follow the, what's going on in the news but in, in North Carolina right now, isn't this exactly what we see? It is wrong for you to condemn someone for showering with the opposite sex or whatever. But it's okay to do it. It's okay. It's wrong to condemn someone. It's a shame, isn't it? And again, the point isn't politics because if, if you, you have corruption on every side of the aisle. Is that, is that on? Is, am I being truthful here? So I'm not talking about... Uh, there, there's not a uh, divine party, political party. What I'm saying is in general, the world, the world is going to call right wrong and wrong right. And see, but it's all selfish. It all goes back to, to, to selfishness. In fact, uh, we, we can't fall for that. Right? That's how the world thinks. Paul's saying, don't be conformed to the world. See, when you look at, at, at this together, you say, okay, it's all about me or or it's all about we, or really us. Um, me, if you look at it, it's all selfish. Me is first person singular, right? It's a first person singular pronoun. First person's me. What's we? That's first person plural, right? But both, all of those are first person. It's still about self, me and my people, right? But when you look at, at what Jesus said, he said something very, very different. In Matthew, chapter 22, 34, you don't have to turn there, I'll put it up on the screen. Um, Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, by the way, the word testing there means to try and trick. So they're trying to trick Jesus. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. verse, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And they already had their answers ready. No matter what he said, they were going to try and get him stuck. Jesus said to, to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus took all the law, all the prophets, and reduced them down to two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus is a master of simplifying concepts that we, we tend to complicate, right? Love God, love your neighbor. 
all the law hangs on these two things, right? And, and, uh, and so let's compare that to a moment. It's all about me, this first person, singular. When you say love God, what is that? I mean, I mean that's not selfish. It's all about him. Isn't that really a, a complete different way of thinking? It's not all about me anymore. It's all about him. Why? Because I've sacrificed my body to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Now it's no longer about me. It's about him. That's, uh, that's, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That means it's all about them. Not my people. Them. Other people. Even to the point where Jesus, dying on the cross, said, Father, forgive those who are crucifying because they don't know what they're doing. It's about them. He's dying for them. You see, him, that's third person singular. Them, that's third person plural. Uh, this is the exact opposite of selfish. It's not selfish, it's sacrificial. And I'll tell you what, the moment we grasp this, we see everything in a different light. We are not here for us. We are here for them. We are here for him. When I was a counselor at Lake Ann Camp, it was called Lake Ann Baptist Camp at the time, uh, Eldon Brock was the, was the camp philosopher. He was, he was called the camp director. We called him the camp philosopher. <laughs> and and, he, and we, we said, first Eldon won one. It was, it was this. He said, camp is for the camper, not necessarily for the convenience, ease, or enjoyment of the staff. And we had to memorize that, and we memorized that, and he would ask us that over and over and over again. And that's why 20-some years later, I can still remember it. Right? What was he saying, though? I mean, first and foremost, we were there to serve God. That was in the purpose statement. But first, Eldon 1-1 existed, so we learned we're not here for ourselves either. We're here for those campers. Why? Because Christianity means we're here to sacrifice. We're here to be a living sacrifice. That means we give everything we have to sacrifice for others. That's not the way we always live our lives, is it? Wouldn't it be awesome if the world knew Christians as the people who sacrifice themselves for them? It would be very very difficult for them to say the things that they say about us, to mock us the way they mock us, if we really lived our lives to sacrifice for them. Say, but they're crucifying us, Pastor Dave. Yep. That's exactly right. They were crucifying Jesus Christ when he willfully died on the cross for them. And we're to follow Jesus Christ. We're to be the living sacrifices. Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. They can't see him physically anymore, but they can see him through us. That's why we're here. That's what we're called to be. And it's, it's not selfish. It's, it's sacrificial. Right? So that's how God wants us to think. See, Christ is the perfect example for us. He fully loved people, didn't he? Fully loved people. What does that mean? Did that definition of love mean he never called sin, sin? No. Jesus called sin, sin. Remember the woman at the well? He forgave her. He loved her. He forgave her and he said, go and sin no more. Well, that doesn't sound very politically correct. Correct. It means sin, right? Don't fall into thinking of the world. Think like Christ. Be self-sacrificial. Love them. So how do we do that? How do we stop thinking like the world and start thinking like Christ. Well, Paul answers that in Romans 12, 2. Continues on. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is also in that ongoing present imperative tense. In other words, this is something that you're going to have to do daily. You're going to have to transform your mind. You're going to have to change the way that you think. Right? It's, it's something that, that's going to have to be renewed. I, I look at it like an antivirus program. And for anyone who has PCs, you, you need antivirus programs. For those with Macs, you don't have to worry about it. But for those with PCs, I have to throw that little plug in there. I'm a Mac guy. Any other Mac people? Ah, oh, Mint? Wow. Okay. So you all know what I'm talking about. But you get, a, you get, uh, you get an, an, an antivirus program. If you load it once and do nothing with it, what's going to happen? Yeah, it might protect you from some viruses for a little while, but people are always finding new viruses, and, and one of those viruses is going to get into your computer. What do you have to do with your antivirus programs? You have to update them. You have to constantly be updating. The more often you update them, the more likely you are going to catch the, the viruses before they come in and destroy your computer. It's the same way with our minds, right? We have to renew our minds. It, it's written in that ongoing present imperative tense. It's something that we have to continually be doing. We need to be updating it. There, Satan is going to find different ways. He's going to try and get in your life, and he's going to try and destroy your life. He's going to get wrong thoughts, wrong beliefs, wrong ideas in your brain. And we have to constantly be in God's word so that we'll be able to recognize and say, oh wait, this is a trick. Right? Oh yes, the, 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 the worm looks very juicy, but there's a hook in it. And we have to learn to see that hook if we want to survive. Right? Because that's the way Satan works. That's the way he's trying to get us to think. We need to be transformed in the, the renewing of our mind. In one of the servant leader courses uh, called Overcoming Stubborn Sins, uh, there's a, a, a there's a, a diagram we, we give called the behavior cycle. Uh, there's an entire course on this, so I'm not going to talk about the entire course, but I just want to bring it up so we can see how it relates to this passage in a moment. But it's, it's quite simple. First, the character, our character will control our thoughts. Our thoughts will determine our actions. Our, our actions over time become habits, and then our habits will develop our character. This simple, this simple diagram will explain how our behavior tends to work. And if I had time, I'd show all the verses that show that show how this works together. But but for now, let's just look look at it as an example. For a moment, let's take uh, let's take a, a young married man who has poor character. Let's just start with him. And a temptation comes along. Let's say a young, pretty lady who is immodestly dressed comes along and makes a, some kind of pass at him. Right? His character is going to determine his thoughts. Because his thoughts, and then he's say, wow, you know, hey, this is an opportunity, right? His character is controlling his thoughts. Then his thoughts are going to determine his actions. Hey, can I get your phone number? Whatever it might be. <laughs> and then those actions over time are going to become habits, right? He's going to become that kind of person. And then those habits develop your character so that then other opportunities come up. And guess what? He's already, he's already gone down that road. His, his thoughts are going to be even worse. And, hey, and then that, those thoughts are going to become actions. Maybe adultery, right? And then adultery can lead to, to other, have habits of a lifestyle of infidelity. And now he becomes a man of even worse character. And the cycle is not just a cycle. It's a spiral downward, right? Isn't that what we read about in Romans 1? Or this cycle can work for us. Take a man of good character. Maybe a, a young man who's just accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's a young married man. And the same situation comes up. And he, he might think, yeah, you know, this is an opportunity. But 
this isn't what God wants for me. You know, this isn't going to lead to where, 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 where there's optimal joy. And, and so, so he has a different action. He decides to, to turn and look the other way. Right? Well, that becomes a habit over time. And, and so time after time, he's looking the other way. And that develops his character. Now he's got good character. The next time a temptation comes along, it's not as tempting. Right? And he's going to have better actions and develop better character. And, and then the cycle is going to continue until it comes to a point where it just doesn't get that tempted by a lot of those things. Right? How this circle, this cycle, behavior cycle can work for you or against you. And so how do you make that cycle work for you instead of against you? Well, the, that's where the answer in Romans 12 comes along with. And it's through renewing your mind. You have to inject at the level of the thoughts. In fact, let me go back to that. You have to inject at the level of your thoughts. If you start with character, you're in trouble. Just say, today I'm going to be good. That's why January 1st, New Year's resolutions tend to work for about two or three weeks. Right? I've told you the story before. You know, where I was weightlifting at the, uh, uh, at, at, uh, oh, I forgot the name of the gym there. The YMCA. Thank you. And, uh, and I went in in January, and with all the guys that I was used to working out with, they're like, Man, it's packed in here. He said, Don't worry, they'll go away in about two weeks. <laughs> Why? Because we, check, we, we start with characters. I'm just going to be good. You can't, you know, you're lying to yourself. Or habits. You say, Well, I'm just going to cut down on sin a little bit. No, sin is like weeds, they grow. That's like saying, I'm going to chop my weeds right above the roots. <laughs> what happens? They go, come back and they come back stronger. Or I'm just going to change my actions. That's kind of like, like taking a hose and sticking your thumb in the end of it to, to, to turn the water off might work for a little while, but eventually you'll tire and the water's going to come out. You've got to go to the spigot, and according to the scriptures, that spigot is the level of thoughts. You need to change the way you think. You need to renew your mind on a daily basis. You need to be constantly renewing your mind on the truth of God's word. I'm going to share one story um, of, of uh, a true story of, of a woman who was involved in a, in a bad car accident. She you know, I don't know all of the details of the car accident, but it caused enough of a, of a trauma in her that she was unable, physically unable, to drive a car again. Every time she would try to get into the car, she would, she would freeze up and she would have a panic attack. And, and so she went to the psychologists who were able to tell her that she was having panic attacks. That was real helpful. And, um, and then she went to psychologists who gave her medicines and tried to, to help her overcome some of these things and calm her down. But down and, and, uh, until she would get the bill for those medicines and then she wasn't so calm anymore and, uh, and all these things, she tried all these different things and, uh, and she just she couldn't do it she couldn't drive a couple years went by and the kids are, are now if you know what it's like when you have kids growing up they start getting involved in science olympiad or volleyball and track and so on and, and so here the dad happened to be the uh, the primary uh, breadwinner of the family who's doing all of that stuff, but then he also had to do all of the driving because his wife couldn't do any of the driving. And even though he started off with a lot of patience, he was starting to lose patience. So she went to her pastor to get help on how to convince her husband to be more empathetic. <laughs> and the pastor just starts saying, well, tell me about how you feel when you have these panic attacks. What are you thinking? And she kept, she wanted to talk about him. He wanted, she, he wanted to talk about her. What, what, what are you thinking? And he started coming up and he started writing things down on little three by five cards. And, 
And so what he found is there were several things that she was thinking in those moments that weren't true. Thinking things like, well, God's not in control. But is God in control? Did God allow even that accident to happen? Yeah. Or thinking like, well, God is benevolent. God, God has his best intentions. If he's in control, he's not, he's not good. His plans might be bad for me. Right? She's not thinking. And, and as he's talking, he's writing down. He's got a little stack of, of, of three-by-five cards with things that he had written down. And then he, said, he told her at the end of the session, he said, look, I've already made arrangements. Your husband has been taken home. He's waiting outside. Your husband's been taken home. Here's the keys to the car. You're going to drive I'm a pastor, I can't, I'm going to have a panic attack. I know I'm going to have a panic attack. Go into the panic attack, or you know, as soon as you do, pull out these cards and put them on a little ring. Put them on these cards. These are Bible verses contradicting the things that you're believing in that moment. So she starts, she goes out to the car, she, she starts, starts the car, she has a panic attack. She pulls out these cards and she starts reading. Oh, God's in control. All things work together for good. Those who love God. Start reading them. And he said, read them until you believe them. And this is a true story. Seven hours. The rest of the work day, she was reading, trying, praying, meditating. What was she doing? She's renewing her mind. Getting rid of the false beliefs, filling her mind with the truth of God's word. Seven hours. Seven hours later, though. She started that car. She drove home. She's been driving ever since. Why? Seven hours in contact with this is going to be worth a whole lot more than anything the world has to offer. I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking psychologists. I'm not knocking psychiatrists. I'm not knocking them. I'm saying, but in comparison to the power of God, in comparison to the power of, of of what God can do when we renew our minds, it is unbelievable. Unbelievable what God can do when we're willing to renew our minds. And so that's what the verse is all about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. This is transforming power, is it not? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For what purpose? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Think of the word prove. The, the word there, it's the same word that we, that's often translated approve or discern. So the idea is you will be able to, if you are transforming your mind with, with God's word, if you're transforming your mind, you will be able to discern these things. Number one, what is good. You, you won't blur the difference between good and evil like the world does. That's the, that's the world. You blur good and evil. That's the world's thinking. You will be able to look at something and say, ah, this is good. And that is bad. We all think we can do that. In fact, the Bible says multiple times, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that is what? Death. Things yeah. that look right, but they're not. He's saying you'll be able to know what's right. You'll be able to discern what is good and what is not good. I don't know about you, but that's, that's quite a blessing. To be able to spot evil a mile off, yeah, I want that. I want that. So then you'll be able to prove what is good, acceptable. Here's the, the, the only term that we really find in both, both verses. 
It's the idea that something is acceptable to God. That this means it will be acceptable to God. We will know what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God. Without renewing our mind daily on scriptures, without renewing our mind on, on the truth, then we'll, we're going to draw the lines where they ought not be. We're going to say, well, this just seems right to me, so it's okay for that. Or this, is, this behavior is okay. But we're going to draw the line right where it needs to be between what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God. And we all have religious freedom. We all have Christian liberty even. But where the line is between what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable, that doesn't change. And we'll know where that is. If we renew our mind with the truth of the scriptures. And the last adjective we find there is perfect. Well, the perfect will of God. The word perfect there means complete. It's total. In other words, everything you need to know to be able to stay in God's will, you'll be able to know if you have a pattern of renewing your mind with the truth of God's word. That's a huge promise, isn't it? Yes. That is an amazing thing. This is what Jesus was talking about. And when you look at the we look at the big picture of everything we've learned in verses 1 and verses 2. Paul is going to sacrifice everything. Sacrifice it all. Right? Lose your life, he's saying. Lose your physical life because of what God is willing to give you in, in place of it. This is exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 16. You don't even have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read it to you. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? Don't conform to, to the world. Don't, don't be about me, right? Deny himself. Take up his cross. Sacrifice. Live a life of sacrifice and follow me. And then he describes it this way. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to find real life? And take the life that you have right now, sacrifice to God. Give it 100% completely to Him. And you know what? You're going to find a life that you never understood, never could even imagine was real. And if, if there are those in here who have done that, there are those in here who have said, I've sacrificed my, my life to the Lord. And I'm not saying it'll be, it'll be easier, but you're, you have a life that is far surpasses anything you could have had before. And if there's anyone who's been through that, can you say amen? Amen. It's true. Can you say it with conviction? All right. Yeah. It's a life that goes far beyond anything that we could have imagined when you sacrifice the one life that we're given here. I'm going to end with just three quick questions, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Number one, have you ever laid your body on the altar? Has there ever been a point in your life where you said, God, this is it, I'm sacrificing everything? No more, no more New Year's resolutions that I give up on every couple of weeks. No more, no more of that. This is the one-time decision. I'm going to say, Lord, this body, everything, my time, my talents, my treasures, they're yours. Use them for you. They're not about me. It's not about me. It's about him and them, not me. If there's never been a time where you've made that decision, today's the day to make that decision. In just a moment, we're going to sing, I decided to follow Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to come forward. You say, well, that's kind of embarrassing to get forward, come forward in front of people. Uh, if, if you're too embarrassed to come forward with your body, then you're not going to be willing to do whatever God's going to ask you to do with your body, right? So you can come forward, or you can go to the back. We have people in the back. They have a 
lane that says, ask me. Talk to them. They can, they can talk to you and show you from Scripture how you can know for sure that you have given, given over your entire life to, to, to Jesus Christ. And even though you're giving up that short period of time, they can explain to you about the eternity that God has given you in place of that. Second question for introspection. How well do you fit into the world's mold? How, how disgusting do you find it when the world is separating itself from what the scripture says? Or do you find yourself kind of fitting in? Yeah, this seems kind of right to me. Oh, God says something is sin. The world says it's okay. Well, yeah, I can kind of see that it's okay. How well are you fitting into the way the world's thinking? And thirdly, what are you doing to renew your mind? If it's just going to church once a week, that's a start. That's a start. We have access to this book on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. What do you do to renew your mind? All sorts of ways. My Bible study. The connection groups. They're going through different Bible studies. Find someone else that that wants to study something that you do. Study it together. Whatever it is, get God's Word in your head and in your heart and in your hands. So So it's all a part of you. So that your body is sacrifice to God. I'm going to close a prayer and then I'm going to sing. And if the Lord's working in your heart to sacrifice your body to the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to come forward. If you want, you can come and just pray. If you're saying, today is the day that I just want to say, Lord, I'm sacrificing myself for you. Whatever, whatever it is you want. Maybe there's something specific that God has been asking you and you, and you know that, he, that He's wanting you to do something for Him. Then just come to, come to the front today and just pray. We're not going to bother you. Just come up and pray and make that commitment to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive. It's sharp. Sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us. Because it pierces us right where we need to be pierced. And so Lord, as we conclude the service today, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has never made that decision to follow you, that one-time decision for salvation, right now would be that moment. Where they place their trust in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So Lord, I pray that you convict them right now, that they would make that decision right now. And Lord, I also pray, I know there are many in here who have accepted you as their Savior. But Lord, if we were to compare our lives to the life of Christ, we're starting to conform to the image of the world instead of the image of your Son. So, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts. If there's something that we've been doing or belief that we've been having, I pray, Lord, that right now we would lay it at your feet. We would repent of that and live like we are, sacrificing our bodies for you and for those around us. I pray this in Christ's name.